On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Fred Sanders about the doctrine of the Trinity and soteriology. So we cover topics like how does the Trinity give shape to all the sub-doctrines of soteriology? How does it order doctrinal discourse in general? How does the Trinity shape our understanding of things like atonement, ecclesiology, the Christian life? Why should theologians and churches value the Trinity even more than they already do? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in so being serious, we've wanted to cultivate, I guess maybe an intellectual culture is the proper word, uh, that is full of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we want to, I guess, find that middle ground of being very serious about our knowledge and our our academic interests and, and I guess, I mean, we're analytic guys, so we like scholastic sort of distinctions, but we also want to have that warm pastoral heart that's kind, that's cheerful, that's, that's also interested in what other people have to say, whether they agree with us or not. So that's what we've been trying to cultivate here at the London Lyceum. We're not always perfect at it, but we're striving to hit that middle target, think of James 3, and those sort of virtues that of the wisdom that's from above, this gentleness and open reason. That's what we hope to hit at. Now, today, I'm, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Fred Sanders. I imagine most of you probably know who he is, who listen to our podcast on, on a regular basis. If you don't, you'll get to know him here. I think he's awesome. And I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit but I mean, I think back when I was sort of a cage stage Calvinist, I remember getting introduced to Dr. Sanders. I was like, wait a second. So there are people who aren't Calvinists who can do good theology. So that was, I've always had great respect for Fred and his work. I've been immensely blessed by it. And this book that we're going to talk about in particular for this interview is called Fountain of Salvation, Trinity and Soteriology. And I mean, all you got to do is look on the back and look at who's endorsing this and what they're saying to know that right off the top. You don't even have to look at it. This book is going to be awesome. You have Oliver Crisp. He calls it a tour de force. You have Kevin Van Hooser, who says he strikes the perfect balance. You have Lewis Ayers saying this should be, resonate and inspire all Christian traditions. Uh, you have Scott Swain saying this is a, this, a subtle judgment and profound insight, exactly what one would expect from our most gifted theologian on the Trinity. So I am super pumped to introduce you guys to him. So Dr. Sanders, before we jump in or anything, just for those who might not know who you are, I know we've got Brandon's grandma who listens to our podcast. She is our most faithful listener. She probably doesn't know who you are. So give us a little bit of background and then what made you interested to dedicating a significant amount of your life to thinking about the Trinity, to writing about the Trinity and all that goes on with that. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Um, so I, I'm Fred Sanders. I uh, teach at Biola University. I've been there, oh gosh, since 1999, or as I tell my students, since the 20th century. Uh, and of course, that's before my college students were born. So um, it's been a while. Biola University and the Tory Honors College. Uh, I'm a systematic theologian specializing in the doctrine of the Trinity. Though my teaching load, as I mentioned, is undergraduate general education uh, using the great books model. So Socratic uh, pedagogy uh, centered around classic proven texts. 
So your book, you, you kind of walk through um, how the Trinity orders and relates to all of these other um, doctrines that we uh, think about in the Christian faith. So maybe we could start with um, different sub-doctrines of soteriology. Talk to us about how the Trinity um, orders our thinking about soteriology. Yeah, so the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is both a particular doctrine, making some claims about God, um, and also a... Um, uh, you know, a field encompassing field of doctrine. If you start sort of looking into what has to go into the doctrine of the Trinity, well, clearly there's Father, Son, and Spirit there. So you're going to have to have your doctrine of God the Father, your doctrine, of, which by the way, there's no word for the, there's no name for the doctrine of God the Father. It's a, you know, it's a real thing, but we don't, you can't go out and get books on, if you get books on patrology, they're about the church fathers. Um, but when it comes to the doctrines of the Son and the Spirit, we're we're, we're dealing with Christology and pneumatology, which of course are themselves vast fields with lots of subtopics. You know, you can't um, you can't just cover all of Christology. You got to break that down into person and work. There's all these uh, subzones, and then it's within Christology and pneumatology that you get to the accomplishment of salvation and the application of salvation. And so you just start to see how high up in the doctrinal, you know, hierarchy or order of considerations that Trinitarianism is. Um, and so really, this is this book is my attempt to do justice to both the doctrine of the Trinity as a, you know, a claim about God, um, but also as a field encompassing field that takes in and determines everything we want to say about salvation. So if the Trinity is that big of a, I don't know, I guess shaping all of our theology. How important is it? I mean, I guess obviously it's pretty important to have a a right version of the Trinity because there's, I think you have different models that are out there. Um, but how important is it to have, I don't know, I think you would, would you say your model of the Trinity is more of a Western or Latin sort of model? Is it particularly problematic or does it misshape our view of scripture and other doctrines if we were to depart from that sort of thinking about the Trinity? Well, um, so I, I spent a lot of time working with what you might call mere Trinitarianism, you know, the kind of um, large uh, core claims that, you know, if, if you blur your eyes about the distinctions out at the edges, there, there is a, a large common shared ground. Um, I think you used the, the phrase Latin model, which I think in analytic literature is usually contrasted to social model. Right. Though, because of my immersion in historical theology, when you said Latin model, my immediate thought was that we were going to talk about the filioque. That is to say, a, a Western model of the, you know, a Western view of the spirit proceeding from the father and from the son as from one common source. Um, so there's a number of different distinctions that could be drawn here. Um, uh, I have positions on all of those things and I, you know, work them out with appropriate nuance and I hope appropriate clarity. Um but I also believe there is such a thing as mere Trinitarianism. Um, and so I do want to be careful before I descend into talking about, you know, some of the distinctions about ways of construing this. Uh, to me, the main things are pretty plain and I'm focused on a, uh, I don't have a good motto for this, like a gospel centered Trinitarianism. Um, I'm focused on a view of God that is the result of understanding that the father sent the son and the spirit. And so those missions, you know, when I say gospel, I mean the accomplishment of salvation and the sending of the Son and the Spirit. Um, those missions are grounded in eternal processions within the life of God. So it's a it's fundamentally a Nicene view of the identity of the Trinity. 
uh, and how that works out into the accomplishment of salvation. One of the areas that I think uh, sloppy Trinitarian thinking can uh, be most glaring is when we talk about the atonement. Um, so maybe you could, and, and as we're recording this, uh, Good Friday is right around the corner. Um, so we think about what happened on the cross. Uh, walk us through why a um, a very uh, detailed, oriented uh, understanding of what's going on in the Trinity is important when we talk about what happened on the cross, that we can't just be sloppy with uh, with our atonement um, preaching, particularly, because I think sometimes preachers get into trouble when they start talking about what's going on with atonement theories and everything else because it's rooted in bad Trinitarian theology. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially with, um, you know, preaching on the cross, uh um, preaching about the cross and um, the you know the liturgical the Christian uh, re-experiencing of the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, I think that the main thing that the doctrine of the Trinity can provide for the teaching on salvation, especially through the atonement, is um, orientation or perspective. I guess what I want to say is there is a there is a sequence of thought that you should follow from the God who does the saving to the saving that that God does. Um, and that sounds really basic and, you know, it's even didactic to lay it out that way. But you do get someone sort of overheated about preaching on the, about the cross and they'll say stuff like, you know, God died, the Trinity split up, there's a broken Trinity. And they'll say this um, not in a casual way like I just did, but, you know, at, at the top of their lungs to kind of really impress on people that something mind-blowing happened, that, you know, on that Good Friday – the very Trinity itself, which cannot be split up and has never been uh, uh, broken in any way, came apart for us and our salvation. So, you know, it's gripping and it's out there and it succeeds in um, cranking up the volume and getting your attention, which is certainly one of the things that good preaching ought to do, right? It ought to really, really put you in the middle of the things. Unfortunately, what, what you hear it doing there is compromising the very, um, uh, the very teaching about who the God is who does the salvation. Um, and you'd recognize this immediately if someone said, um, God loved us so much that he stopped existing for us, you know, like, like for, for a weekend, there was no God, <laughs> God, God winked out of existence and had no ontic status. Uh, that's how much he loved us. Then you'd realize, well, that sounds cool, but I don't think it's, it's coherent. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think you can, to put it in the sort of boring way I put it, I think there's a sequence of thought that you have to follow that comes out from who God is to what God does. And so there's a way of preaching the cross without adequate reference to the Trinity that loses its perspective, loses its bearings, and says indefensible things. That's that's really helpful. So you've got several chapters in here. You, you cover a lot of topics with Trinity and salvation and how those go together. One of your chapters is on Trinity and ecclesiology, which I really appreciate it because I think uh, there's not enough attention given to how these things connect. So maybe you can give me you know, just a broad overview of what you're trying to do in that chapter uh, as far as how the Trinity should shape our thinking about the church. Yeah, so the Trinity and church chapter is, um, it, it's kind of a fun chapter uh, to me um, at the high, at the top level, you know, when you're kind of standing off and putting in the main characters that I interact with. Then, of course, there's some footnotes there to, to try to do justice to the complexity of the thinkers, because there's, there's a real danger of, you know, setting up cartoon characters as your dialogue partners. But just at that level, at the really big picture level, there have been some proposals in the late 20th century for how to think about the Trinity and the church 
that are basically kind of blueprint proposals, which is the Trinity has this kind of shape or structure and church should have this shape or structure so that the church is a kind of imitation of the pattern of the Trinity. And from there, you can kind of roll it out like um, uh, a Roman Catholic perspective might really emphasize the um, role of the Pope as the first among equals or, you know, as the vicar of Christ or as the, the top of the pyramid. Um, and, and would then point back to a, a kind of a, a way of appealing to the headship of the father um, that's going to, you know, chime with or make sense with the structure of the church. Um, in response to that, some Eastern Orthodox theologians said, no, no, it's actually three autocephalous centers of, you know, <laughs> of interaction with each other. And then Miroslav Volf came along with a Baptist view. And Mir Volf is actually the one who sort of um, identified this trend of blueprint uh, ecclesiology and said, uh, there are reasons not to pursue that way. But if you did, why not basically come up with a Baptist version of it? <laughs> and so, you know, all, all of the thinkers that I'm mentioning here, I've got the footnotes to carefully um, interact with the, the, what they actually say and the claims that they make. All, all of them are nuanced about this. But I think um, what I recommend is instead treating the church as a creature of the Trinity um, and therefore, you know, really being alert to the fact that as intimately joined as the triune God is to the redeemed people of God in the church, nevertheless, there's a creator-creature distinction there. And so that what you get in the shape of the church um, should more be traced to the work of God than to the Trinitarian structure of the being of God. Now, if, if you're careful about that, you still get to have all the goodies involved, right? You still get to appropriate certain things to the Father, Son, and Spirit. So you can still talk about the calling of the people of God, the church as the body of Christ, um, the church as the temple of the Spirit. You don't lose any of that, um, but you're more careful. It, and it also sets you up better to read Scripture because Scripture is consistently talking about the church as the creature of God. As a pastor, uh, sometimes when I'm talking to a church member or um maybe a Christian who's who's not a member of my church. It seems like the Trinity uh, for some is just kind of like this thing that we know we're supposed to believe in. It's this doctrine that the church believes, but it's just totally detached from my Christian life. Um, so can you maybe speak to the person uh, who, who doesn't um, have a, an understanding or a feeling that the doctrine of the Trinity actually matters for them in their day-to-day -day walk as a Christian? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's, I would describe this as sort of my life message. And, and I should just flag the fact that this book, um, Fountain of Salvation, is written in a pretty high academic register. So if, if you're dealing with someone who's really feeling that need, um, this may not be the immediate book for you. This this does more of the academic um, background. My dialogue partners are all, you know, kind of high up there in, in that kind of theology. Um, but in my book, The Deep Things of God, and in the teaching that I do in churches, what I'm always going for is as close a connection as possible between the Trinity and the gospel. So at one level, it's an argument about powers of association. If I can help you associate the thought of the gospel with the thought of the Trinity, so that when I say Trinity, your first thought is not, gee, is that like water or a shamrock? Um, or, you know, is that like a, a really difficult mathematical philosophical issue that smart analytic types might someday produce a compelling proof about? Right. If, if that's your set of associations, it is going to be a long journey to ever get to why this is practical. But if as soon as I say Trinity, you think, oh, you mean the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit? 
then then there's a there's a magnetic power of association there between Trinity and gospel um, that I think is immediately valuable. It's a short trip from that to why does this matter in my Christian life? Because, for instance, any way that you talk about salvation or communion with God in sort of normal Christian uh, parlance, um, it's usually a kind of a shorthand that you can begin unpacking and find Trinitarian stuff in. So, you know, if you say, um, in Christ, God is my father, you can just start unpacking that and say, oh, um, the father sends the spirit of sonship into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, uh, by which we, uh, you know, as as creations are adopted sons of God. So all, all of this is going on. You can do this with almost, you know, uh, anything saved, forgiven, redeemed, um, adopted, all, all that kind of um, language about the Christian life is uh, ready to be unpacked Trinitarianly. And especially if, if you've made the initial move at the level of powers of association, where when you think Trinity, you think the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I should go ahead and say that there is one, you know, if you think Trinity and gospel, then the big step you have to take behind that is to say, and God would have been Trinity in that way, even if the Father had not sent to the Son or the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's initially a statement about who God is before it's a statement of what God does and how what God does corresponds to who God is. You know, I have a question. When when we're thinking about the Trinity and you've got sections on the modern Trinity as well as gospel ministry and theological education and everything. Is there a sense in which something like, I know there's under the banner of social Trinitarianism, it could mean 15 different things. So let's just say when I say social Trinitarianism, I'm just thinking more of a psychological sort of understanding of the Trinity where there's three centers of consciousness in some way. Is that more naturally appealing to the person in the pew. And if it is, I guess, is it um, okay to leave it that way? Or is there a better way to instruct our church members to say, no, don't think of it like this. Think of it actually more in line with this. What are the resources that you would give for that? Yeah. Um, so in the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, you have the fact that um, you know, we start with the one God of the Old Testament, and um, in the New Covenant, the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so uh, within the banner of Old Testament belief in the one God, uh, you know, within that heading, we start thinking about, well, then what do you call this thing where the Father sends the Son and, and the Son is also God, you know, and, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit and the Spirit is also God? What um, th there's no term given by the Bible for what there are three of in this, you know, so you baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's three. Yeah, but three what? And famously, Augustine said, yeah, if you ask me three what, I'm going to say persons because I don't want to say nothing. Right? Now, um, but and so I have to say something and there are three somethings, but we're not directly given biblical names for that. So we settle on person, you know, in various languages. We could do the Greek and the Latin on this, but it comes into English as person and and then we get, do get into a problem where um, person means lots of things. You know, even when you're not thinking about the Trinity, you have all kinds of ideas and opinions and presuppositions and intuitions about personhood. Um, it is not legitimate to take anything in your set of intuitions about what a person is and project that onto God and say, that must be what there's three of in God, because then the, the traffic's flowing in the wrong direction. Now, so there's a lot of, I think, 
you know, I don't want to be a doctrine cop on this and, and police everybody's language, but there, there does have to be some care there when someone says something like, um, oh, I don't know, you hear someone say, how can there be three persons in God if the Father doesn't have a body? You're like, whoa, I see what you're doing there. You, Every person you've ever met has a body, so you've just ported that whole thing up there. Naively, something like that can be going on in popular level hard social Trinitarianism, where there's an assumption that like, you and I are talking and we're different people. So the Father and the Son, they're different people. Now at the lay level, you know, if someone's really committed to this and interested in talking about it, you, I can dig into the English distinction between the word person and people, right? I can say there are three persons in God, but notice that that language is a little prickly. There's something a little standoffish about thing, saying three persons instead of three people, right? Who talks about persons, right? The fire marshal uh, posts signs that say, you know, not to be occupied by more than 25 persons, but it's a weird kind of technical sounding usage. And I found that a lot of people will pick up on that and say, oh, right. When I say there are three persons in God, I don't mean simply that there are three people in God. And I might not be analytically clear on what that difference is that I just made there, but I can register it. And and for most people, that's all you need. <laughs> for most persons, that's all you need is for them to register because that'll resonate with them. They'll They'll know that the Bible is not talking about three people that are people in every sense that everyone you've ever met is a person. Um, how much further you have to dig into that with them can be a question of how much patience have they got? How much have they, you know, how much have they thought about it? Um, and how much trouble are they going to get into if they continue thinking um, about the three, what there are three of in God as people? Uh, here's a, here's a, I'll use an analogy for this. Um, in what I think is a less complicated and less controversial way. At least I hope it is. <laughs> um, uh, we talk about the Father sending the Son, and sending is some kind of revealed divine metaphor for something that is not like any other form of sending. So, you know, I'll sing songs about the Father sending the Son. He came from heaven above, you know, down here to live on earth among us. But if you really press me for clarity on what sending means, I'm going to have to sort of break that biblically given concept down. I'm even dealing with a biblical concept here, right? The Bible says the Father sent the Son, or the Bible doesn't use the word person in the way we're using it. I'm going to say, well, listen, if by sending you mean one agent sends another agent so that B, agent B, gets further away from agent A and does something at some distance in locality, that agent A is not involved in. Like, that's what sending is for me, right? I, I send my son to the store. The whole point is I don't go with him. If if I go with him, I say, I take my son to the store. But the father didn't take the son with him. The father sent the son. Now, for the average person um, who doesn't do a lot of theology, when you start down this simple little thought project that I just did, they may feel ripped off. Like, Oh man, I thought the father sent the son, but now after I listen to you theologians talk for a while, it turns out he didn't. <laughs> no, what I want to say is, no, no, the father did send the son. I know this and I will continue to sing the songs that say he came from heaven above, right? But I also have to know that when I stop and think about it, I am not talking about local motion by which one person gets further away from another as he draws locally closer to some destination. What do I mean by sending? Well, by golly, let us open the Gospel of John and meditate on what sending means. Because, because again, in this case, this is a this is a metaphorical term God himself chose for describing 
what the incarnation is. It's ascending. It means it's a it's a making present of the Son in a new way, uh, in a way that changes the uh, the destination, right? The the uh, the human destination of the sending of the Son, the hypostatic union, uh, that undergoes a change. We could talk about that, you know, more more analytically, more metaphysically too. Yeah, that's that's really really helpful. I was curious um, if you had so the so the Westminster Confession uses the language of persons, but then when you get to the Second London Confession. Um, which is uh, the confession that a lot of our listeners are going to be most familiar with. When it on, on its chapter on the Trinity, it it substitutes in place of the word persons. It uses subsistences, and I didn't know if you thought do you do you think that is a, a better term to use, or are you just kind of indifferent on if one is better or the other? Because um, I, I kind of feel like for the reasons that you've already, um, we bring all of this baggage with the, the language of persons with us and we don't have any of that baggage with subsistences, but it's also a more, uh, unfamiliar term for most of us. So do, do you think that's a good term to use? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And this is, um, I really think you're asking a question in the realm of communication strategy and theory, right? I mean, so there are theological issues involved, but the real question is like, what's going to succeed in communicating with listeners. Um, I, I am still committed to it, the value of using the word person. And as I said, in English, I, I will point out that I'm not saying people, but I'm saying person. And that's different. I, I'll even say, I'm also not talking about people in a relationship because relationship brings a bunch of interpersonal, emotional baggage, um, that involves a history, right? If I say you and I are going to have a relationship, that means we're going to engage in a, a history of uh, personal interactions whereby we develop something over the course of time. And so the Trinity is not people in relationships. You know, it's persons in relation. Um, here, here's why it's still valuable to use the word person and not switch over to something like subsistence or hypostasis or something like that. Um, there's still some analogical purchase that's worth maintaining in what there's three of in God. The, um, so I'll avoid using the word model here and I'll talk about analogy. I'll say the social analogy for the Trinity is still extremely helpful uh, because in a certain way, the three persons of the Trinity are like three people in a group. In another way, now it has to be supplemented. The reason I'll use analogy instead of model is the analogy has to be supplemented with in a certain way, the three persons of the Trinity are like one mind perfectly knowing and loving itself. And I, and I want to be able to appeal to both of those because I think Scripture uh, freely makes use of both ways of analogically talking. Yeah, that's helpful. So, when I mean, when I think about churches and pastors, at least in my context growing up, thinking about Trinity and related themes like that, it, it was not always on the forefront of I want to study an academic book to understand what's going on here and to understand all these distinctions that should be made. So maybe. Can you explain to me how you would, I don't know, what, what's your pitch? When you, when you, if you're talking to pastors or you're talking to seminary students or you're talking to people who want to be pastors, why is it they should think about the Trinity in these ways? Why should they take the time to read works like this and to understand all these? Sometimes, depending on where you're at in your own spiritual journey, you might think of these as a little bit um, obtuse or maybe stuffy sort of distinctions. What, what's the purpose behind them? So at that level, I think it really is about understanding uh, salvation, you know, understanding uh, the experience of the gospel, 
um, and also reading the Bible. Um, so I think that reading the Bible with Trinitarian lenses, that is to say, with um, a clear presentation of the view of God as Trinity, um, that opens up all kinds of levels of meaning that without the Trinitarian hypothesis as part of your reading equipment, you're just going to miss out on a lot of. So, um, you know, my view of, of Christian tradition is that it's uh, ministerial and helpful. Um, so I'm sola scriptura, um, but I, I just take the main lines of the Christian doctrine of God to be um, extremely helpful in properly interpreting and understanding scripture. So that means that as a placeholder, I might say, uh, I believe in the Trinity, you know, as taught in the Nicene Creed and uh, affirmed in various other confessions. Um, but that that's a temporary placeholder, right? That's like a storage uh, section for where I say. And, and the reason that, say, Westminster Confession or the London Confession or the Nicene Creed um, affirms this is not on its own authority, but because uh, it believes that this is the right interpretation of what is in Scripture. So I, I do think it's super valuable. Um, so, so one thing, it's good to use, make use of those confessions. Um, but secondly, it's good to recognize that they are not stopping points, that their whole goal is to get you back to the right interpretation of Scripture. So as an evangelical Christian, um, I think it's very important to raise normal Christian people up to the level of being able to see the doctrine of the Trinity directly in Scripture. You know, it's, um, it's in Romans, it's in Galatians, it's in Ephesians, um, it's in the overall long canonical sweep of the biblical revelation as God makes himself known to his people. I have a similar question to kind of follow up on that. Um, so as someone who spends uh, a lot of, well, a whole lot of time uh, training pastors, but then you also spend time teaching in uh, local church contexts, um, do you have any advice for how pastors can best model um, sound thinking about the Trinity? Um, what comes to my mind is the way that we pray publicly. I think that would be a good way for us to model um, Trinitarian thinking. But I don't know if you had any other practical advice for pastors, because we have a lot of pastors who listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, so I think most most preaching, of course, it depends on your, you know, how you structure the preaching calendar, how you think about the whole you know, long, long stretches of preaching. Um, my own church preaches, uh, you know, passage by passage through books of the Bible. Um, with a couple of minor exceptions for, you know, Christmas and Easter. Um, um, so most most of your Trinitarian teaching is going to be sort of a by the way, right? Like, by the way, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit show up in the following way in this passage. Um, uh, it's not going to be probably, a, here's a sermon on the Trinity. Though if you hit one of those passages, uh, then there, there could be a moment to say, this will be a more doctrinal sermon. Um, and it, and one of the things doctrinal means is it's going to be drawing in references from a number of different places around Scripture uh, to kind of compose an overall teaching. Um, so that's one way is the content. Um, uh, of course, you want to be careful with your worship, uh, your sung worship, to make sure that um, you're using songs, the lyrics of which are going to you know, linger on in people's minds. You think, think about people who are, I've done a little bit of woodworking around the house this month and um, ha have been reminded how much little bits of songs are kind of going through my head all the time. And sometimes those are, you know, sometimes those are worship songs. And um, I'll just get a line that, you know, I'll, 
I'll, I'll be hammering a nail and I'll just think like, what now, what does that line mean exactly? Now, I assume I'm a little different about that because I'm a theologian, but I'm assuming that's kind of how normal Christian people are also living. Like that line without a ton of context is the one that's in my head. So you want to be careful with your sung worship to make sure that it's uh, worth reflection and inspection when that comes up. But then also, uh, Brandon, you mentioned um, prayer. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that prayer in the sort of theologically correct New Testament way is trinitarianly structured. You know that that Christian prayer is to the Father, um, through the Son, in the Spirit, um, and uh, I think that the overwhelming majority of our prayer ought to be uh, in that form. I say the majority because that that doesn't rule out, of course, prayer to Jesus or even prayer to the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, nor does it mean that you have to be explicitly Trinitarian, you know, out loud every single time you pray. Uh, but that the, uh, you know, by and large, the overall shape of the, the prayer that you do publicly ought to be to the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. So one, the, I, I don't know if this is the last chapter in the book. Yeah, it's it's the last one. So it's chapter 10. You have retrieval and the doctrine of the Trinity. And you you walk through some of, I guess, some moderns attempt at retrieval is almost to some degree more about revision than it is retrieval. And then you have a section on revival versus retrieval. Can you just walk me through a little bit about what you intend to convey with that section? Yeah. So this is uh, definitely one of the most academic sections of the book because it's engaging the literature of the modern Trinitarian revival, which is a, a movement uh, during which there was at least an explosion of publication in academic theology on the doctrine of the Trinity and a lot of excitement. Um, and so, you know, I was in grad school in the 90s, um, and I thought that it would be a good idea as a as a doctoral project to kind of uh, engage that literature is very interesting uh, uh, series of publications. And um, what, what I discovered, it was still ongoing at that time. So it was just really hard to keep up with, you know, <laughs> I was trying to write on this topic and get a dissertation done and just the books just kept coming out. Um, and it was, uh, there was a sort of a self-congratulatory tone to a lot of the writing on the Trinity from say the seventies on, it was as if no one had ever done anything with the doctrine of the Trinity, or at least in the modern period, but that now we were going to bring it back and do things with it. Now um, there's a way in which that's true. You know, I, I quote a couple of lines in there. If you go back to the thirties, even when Karl Barth said, I'm going to write this massive doctrinal system, the church dogmatics, and I'm going to start with the Trinity and I'm going to be Trinitarian throughout it. You know, I cite one book review from 1931 where a German-American theologian said, uh, Wilhelm Pauk said, as if we should take the doctrine of the Trinity seriously as modern Christians. Like, what is Bart thinking? I like the part where he's doing some kind of existentialist stuff, but when he doubles down on and gets serious about the Trinity, that just sounds crazy. Um, so there is really, you know, in certain academic circles, there was a real um, uh, intentional neglect and sidelining of Trinitarian theology. and so. Um, a lot was accomplished. Um, it turns out, though, whenever someone gets really excited about bringing back old ideas and freshening them, freshening them up for the modern uh, user, um, there's that's always two-sided, right? Like on the one hand, it's old stuff. On the other hand, it's fresh and new for today's reader. Um, in some of that literature of the Trinitarian revival, I think it erred on the side of doing something really new and unique. 
um, instead of actually, it, so that would I say reviving um, in, in some way without really retrieving the actual content of the ancient doctrine of the Trinity. This shows up in various ways where you get a lot of excitement about Trinitarianism, but neglect of the Nicene pattern of triune thinking. I've got one final question that's kind of, well, I think it's kind of a fun question. Maybe you think it's annoying. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. But uh, as somebody who spends so much time uh, teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, both in the classroom and, like I said earlier, uh, in local church context, um, is there a question that, or one or two questions that you get um, that are like the most common questions when you when you do audience? Because you'll talk to Christian apologists, and they'll say, you know, if I if I do a Q and A time at the end, and you know, we we take ten take ten questions at the end, you know, seven or eight of those are always going to be the same questions. Do you get one or two questions like that you always get no matter what? Yeah, yeah, it is a good question at the at the popular level. So you know, when I get a when I get the chance to speak in a church or at an apologetics event or something like that. Um, of course, the question that's always going to come up is what's the best analogy for the Trinity? And it, it's it's a little bit of a bummer um, <laughs> in that, you know, the audience is bringing a set of associations and felt needs and interests, and I don't want to slap those down, but I, I am afraid that I'm often the sort of the wet blanket um, in this setting of like, you know, let me let me explain to you why that's not a great question. You know, oh, gee, thanks, visiting professor. That was really helpful the way my one thought I had about the Trinity, you just poo-pooed in some way, you know, that maybe I don't even understand, but like somehow that was the wrong question and you told me that from your high horse. So, you know, I want to be really sensitive about this. Um, but, but the fact is that the question, what is the best analogy for the Trinity um, is just of really limited scope. So, because when you're dealing with God, um, any question having the form, what's that like, is going to be a very narrow, abstract question. You know, sometimes I'll illustrate this by saying, if I've got time, I'll illustrate this by saying, uh, God created everything from nothing, you know, not out of himself as raw material and not out of pre-existing material that he found laying around, but just ex nihilo. Um, and if your first question on that is, what's that like? Then I'm going to say, I will answer that question, but the answer is only going to take us so far. There are other ways we could explore creation from nothing. So here's what it's like. Yesterday, I went to the kitchen. There were no tuna sandwiches in there. I performed an almighty act of creativity, at the end of which there was a tuna sandwich. That's kind of like, that's kind of what it's like for God to make everything out of nothing. Now, when I say that, you could immediately say, well, you know, I'm going to blow a whistle on that. You found bread and tuna in the cabinet. And, um, you know, that, the, so that's not actually yellow. And I say, right, yeah. So it's an analogy. It's a tiny bit like, you know, my kitchen went from a state of no sandwich to a state of sandwich. That, that's kind of what it's like. Now, if you ask me what the Trinity is like, and you're willing to accept that minimal of a, a you know, if I can scratch your itch by telling you it's kind of like water or whatever, then, okay, we've done something, but we haven't done much. And, and you know, so I feel like I succeeded if I've been able to spend enough time with the church that I can teach them about the Father sending the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that they realize, oh, the Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit because that's what God's like. Like in the eternal being of God, if there were no creation or redemption to consider, God would be the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, with the Son and the Spirit eternally from the Father in the dynamics of the divine life. That's actually what God's like. God's God's being is like God's acting in the following way. 
Um, if I can communicate that successfully and in a way that kind of scratches itches and reaches the touch points and makes the contacts such that in Q&A time, nobody asks what's your favorite model of the Trinity or what your favorite analogy, I feel like, oh, that's kind of a moral victory right there. That's kind of a success. I, I mean, I know the audience still kind of wonders what's the best analogy for the Trinity. That's fine. That's not a, that's not a disallowed thought. It's just kind of a disappointing thought because I feel like, yeah, I mean, I'll answer that. And, and you know, sometimes it can get long and involved because if you say, if you work through some of the analogies and say, well, the problem with the water being ice and liquid and steam is, you know, that's kind of modalism. It's, you know, it's a, it's a tiny glimpse of what the Trinity is like, but it's a perfect example of modalism. But then a physicist in the room is going to stand up and say, what about triple point? And then you got to give them the microphone, let them explain triple point. Um, and then you have to point out why that also is not what the Trinity is like, though it's really cool to talk about and learn about. It's just it's a matter of, you know, spending a lot of time on those analogies for very limited payoff. My favorite one of all time, I had somebody say the Trinity was like a three-in-one shampoo, <laughs> body wash, conditioner. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. So sorry for sticking that in your head, everybody's yeah. listening. Um, last question that I have. Uh, there's a lot of Trinitarian work, I think, that's been coming out over the last five, ten years. We have a lot of students who are listening, and I think they're interested a lot in these Trinitarian doctrine of God sort of areas. What areas of the Trinity would you say are under-researched or could use more exploration from a research standpoint? Well, that's a good question. There's a lot of room to move in historical theology right now. Um, so you can kind of do the Trinitarian theology of fill in the blank. And there's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of interesting stuff there, especially in the Protestant scholastics who really have been sort of under, uh, well, it's not that they've been understudied, you know, that Richard Muller's out there and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of dissertations, um, but they still haven't penetrated the popular consciousness. Like you, you still, you know, when you, when you meet people, they still don't know that there's such a thing as this entire giant Protestant scholastic tradition, uh, much of which has now been, many elements of which have now been translated into English and we can read. So you just point to a lot of um, historical theology that's wide open for, for study. Probably also this area that we, sometimes talk about is sort of the classical doctrine of God. Um, you know, doctrines like uh, saity, simplicity, uh, pure act, some of these really high, I want to say austere in the sense of, you know, really being up there in terms of ab abstraction. Um, uh, yeah, there's still room to work there with kind of uh, restating Trinitarian theology in a way that makes it clear that it's under that canopy or umbrella um, of thought. Thank you for doing this interview with us, Dr. Sanders. This has been, I think, especially educational and helpful. So I, we really appreciate that, number one. And number two, if, if you're not familiar with his work, um, I think my favorite book that you've done, uh, what's the title? It's the one in the Zondervan series, like Our Triune God. Is that the, the formal title? Yeah, The Triune God. Uh -huh. Okay, the, the Triune God. So it, that one for me was extremely helpful because I think you really put a lot of the tools that are necessary to think about the Trinity, as well as just how to read scripturally and theologically. So I found that one extremely beneficial. So I'm going to link to as many of these as I can. You mentioned the deep things of God. Oh, um, go check these out. I mean, and I have, have a great resources. Go ahead. Oh, thanks, Jordan. I have a resource website too. Fredfredfred.com is where I try to give away everything I can and provide links to everything that's still for sale from a publisher. So Fred three times. Fredfredfred.com. That's it. Fredfredfred.com. <laughs> I love that. So I'll link to that as well so that you can go find uh, the resources there. Um, Dr. Sanders, I mean, 
you, I think, for me, are one of the few theologians that is doing high-level work, but you talk like a normal person. So thank you for doing that, and I want to commend other people who are looking for resources. Turn to Dr. Sanders first, because uh, he's always going to have something that's really helpful, as well as, I mean, I don't know how better to say it other than you talk like a normal person. It's just easy to read. So thank you for what you're do, doing there and serving the church and the academy as well. And for everybody who's been listening, thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.